0: England, it is true, in causing a social revolution in Hindustan, was actuated only by the vilest interest and was stupid in her manner of enforcing them. But that is not the question. The question is, can mankind fulfill its destiny without a fundamental revolution in the social state of Asia? If not, whatever may have been the crimes of England, she was the unconscious tool of history in bringing about that revolution. History is the most important tool for change. In order to improve ourselves, we must look into our past to understand our shortcomings and our achievements. Sometimes events and people are lost and not taught in schools. Join me as I take a look into human history and rediscover these people and events that have shaped our lives and find out why we're here. What do you picture when you think of India? Probably some of the main stereotypes like the dot on their foreheads, not eating beef, and the controversial Simpsons character, Apu. Could you name any influential Indians other than Gandhi? Do you even know what he's famous for? I knew nearly nothing about Indian history aside from being previously ruled by Britain, so when I discovered this book, I had to read it. Welcome to Why We're Here podcast, and I'm your host Garrett Shields. This episode will be the first of another collection series that I will come back to from time to time. This is also just one of many fascinating parts from my main source for this episode, Makers of Modern India, edited by Ramachandra Guha. India is a hugely populated country that borders China and the Middle East, yet is a growing democracy seemingly forgotten during discussions of world politics. It's produced several activists who have challenged Western thought with their writings that still influence the country to this day. One of the earliest of these activists started planting the seeds of rethinking what it means to be an Indian in the modern world by challenging their religious practices. He also pushed for modern education for the natives of India while under British rule. His ideas would not have been propagated without the introduction of the printing press and his newspaper in the native languages. Ramahan Roy had set the stage for future activists in India to create a nation that could showcase the challenges of a modern democracy with the unity of multiple religions while undergoing distinct changes as it develops in the present world. These challenges come from a time and place in which India had to keep up with the modern world while finding its own identity. India has one-sixth of the world's population with diverse religions, languages, caste, and ethnicities. It has three times as many people in the U.S. and several major languages, each having its own distinctive script. It has a larger religious diversity than the U.S. or Europe, and a Muslim community that shares its citizenship with them in its 28 states. India, now an independent nation, is strangely left out of the world influence, considering its unique situation. It is simultaneously going through five dramatic revolutions—urban, industrial, national, democratic, and social— It was once a subcontinent of small villages, but now most people reside in major cities and towns. The economy was based on agriculture, now it has shifted to industry and services. The nation was under rule by Europe until relatively recent and has shifted from a feudal state to a democratic one. The society was heavily focused on the patriarch, but now it struggles for individual rights of women and lower caste. Most or all nations have had these revolutions, yet India is experiencing them all at once. The modern India that is developing today began when the Portuguese first arrived on the west coast of the country in the late 15th century. The Dutch, French, and British soon followed and invaded the subcontinent for its gold, spices, and textiles. The Christians also sought to establish missionaries to convert the natives. Bengal became the first province under British rule in the east. Textile trade flourished, and it was a huge source for rice, sugar, and salt. Before the British arrived, a Muslim prince who pledged allegiance to the Mughal emperor in Delhi had ruled in Bengal. The British's East India Company defeated the prince's army in 1757, and in 1765, the Mughals transferred their control of the state to England. The Mughals continued to be responsible for collecting land revenue, controlling trade, framing laws, and running the civil and military administrations. Bengal also provided a base for the British as they began to expand on other parts of India. In the late 18th century, the British army defeated Tipu Sultan of Mysore in the south. The Peshwas in the west were defeated in 1818, and in the north, the Sikhs of Punjab were subdued in the 1840s. By the mid-19th century, the East India Company had controlled most of the subcontinent, either directly or through a multitude of alliances. The British instituted a permanent settlement in East India, similar to the one in Ireland. It promoted a class of landlords to collect revenue, which led the class to become indolent and self-satisfied exploiters, as the real tillers lost their incentive to improve the land. The old capital of Bengal, Murshidabad, began to decline as the new settlement under British rule, Calcutta, prospered as an active port and administrative center. By the 1820s, its population had grown to at least 250,000 people. There was a white town and a black town, both with spacious and fully-staffed houses that belonged to the European and Indian elites, while in between were where the workers and artisans resided. This dividing caste and foreign rule began to spark thought about what this meant to society, and later would produce action. The thinker-activist is produced by revolutionary change or times of crisis such as Winston Churchill during the Second World War, these thinker-activists are a product of their time, and usually only exist during these times. India is unique with its thinker-activists for three reasons. It has continued to produce longer than anywhere else with nearly a century of political thinker-activists. Their ideas and influence have persisted longer and are still present to this day. Finally, they have been a more diverse group of thinkers with different religious backgrounds and social caste. One of the earliest thinker-activists was Ramahan Roy, born in Bengal on May 22nd, 1772, in the village of Raghaganar. He came from the family of the Vaishnava sect of Hindus who were prosperous landowners and served as revenue officials for the Mughals for several generations. He was given the title Raja by the Mughal Emperor Akbar II later in his life. Roy studied Bengali and Persian as a boy, then later he learned Arabic, and English followed after the arrival of the British. He welcomed the British presence as a way to reevaluate the preconceptions of his society by seeking to reform the Hindu faith of its, quote, ugly and exploitative aspects. He also fought for democratic rights from the East India Company, which would set the tone for future reformers. Roy then worked for the East India Company at various places within Bengal before he settled down in Calcutta in 1815. He had published many books by this time, with his first book written in Persian, prefaced in Arabic, Attacking Idol Worship. He also showed interest in world politics, such as welcoming the independence of South American countries from Spain. He supported the liberal opposition to the Spanish monarch, as well as the liberation of the Catholics in the United Kingdom. Roy would later be described as quote, the first Indian to represent growth of freedom in India as an essential part of a wider transnational quest for humanity for self realization. In eighteen thirty he was sent to England to petition the king for a larger allowance for the weakened Mughal emperor. He arrived in London in April of 1831, where he would stay for the next two years meeting officials of the East India Company, lobbying with members of Parliament, and was even granted audience with the King. During his stay, Roy continued to write and publish books on Indian economics and law. He also traded views with British utilitarians and English socialists. Sophia Dobson Collette commented in her biography of Roy, quote, He had interpreted England to India, so now he interpreted India to England, end quote. Roy's stay in London had given him the chance to watch Parliament pass the Reform Bill of 1831, also called the Representation of the People Act of 1832. This bill had introduced major changes to the representation of the people of England and Wales, such as making one in five adult males eligible to vote. Finally, after his time in London, he was able to acquire an increase in allowances from the British government, which amounted to £30,000 per year. Roy's influence to India had come much earlier than this while he was living in Calcutta. Around the time he was learning multiple languages, he began to reject the assertions and prejudice of Orthodox Hindu. One personal event that influenced him was the death of his elder brother and the act forced onto the wife, called Sati. This was a practice common in upper caste families in which the wife of a deceased would have to immolate or sacrifice herself on the husband's funeral pyre. This also concerned Roy since he had been married twice before entering his teens, which was also customary in high caste families. While in Calcutta, Roy became involved in literary and social work by debating orthodox scholars for the rights of women or arguing against Christian declaration that their religion was superior. He also translated the ancient religious and philosophical texts, the Upanishads, from Sanskrit to Bengali. These texts were written sometime between circa 800 to 500 BCE, during a time when the Indians were questioning the traditional Vedic religion. In 1815, Roy created the Yatmya Saba, or Friendship Association. One of its goals was to find the commonalities between different religious traditions. This led to his belief that God was the only proper object of religious reverence and, quote, is one and undivided in person. He promoted interreligious understanding and wrote on the doctrines of Jesus, then Muhammad. Roy and his believers were ridiculed by the Orthodox Hindus and called sinful atheists. The Christians in India also complained that he rejected conversion since his admiration for Jesus did not recognize his divinity. Later, in 1828, he founded the Brahmo Samaj, or Society of God, where he preached the worship of the one God through his beliefs of the original teachings of Vedas. Back in 1818, during his literary work, Roy wrote a pamphlet in Bengali that opposed the practice of sati. An English translation was published later that year, titled, A Conference Between an Advocate For and an Opponent Of, The Practice of Burning Widows Alive. Guha includes an excerpt from this pamphlet in the book, which I have summarized. Roy states that men have taken advantage of women and denied them their abilities given by nature, then are said to be incapable of obtaining said abilities. An example would be the claim of being inferior to understand, yet they are never given the opportunity to show it. Quote, how then can you accuse them of want of understanding? Quote. Women are kept from receiving education, so it is unfair to call them inferior. Women are accused of being deficient of firmness, yet are forced to commit suicide while men shirk at the idea of death. On the subject of relationships, women are accused of betraying their friends and their bond, but men would be caught betraying far more times than women. However, the men are able to promote the faults of women since they have the ability to read and write. They never consider the sins of men against women. It is hypocritical also that men are allowed multiple wives while women can only marry one husband or abstain from any indulgence throughout her life. The wives of these husbands may see him only a few times if more than once from their wedding day, After that, most women must depend on their fathers and brothers while staying virtuous. The wife is only considered the husband's equal during the wedding, then she is reduced to his inferior. For the woman is employed to do the work of a slave in the house. She is required to clean early morning, cook day and night, serve food for the husband and family, and would be insulted or worse if they fault even the smallest amount. The wealthy men would perform criminal acts under the wife's eyes, and would not see her maybe once a month. Wives of poor men have it worse because he would unleash his troubles on her, and if he becomes rich, she becomes heartbroken. The husband may also bring in multiple wives under one roof, which can cause constant fighting and leave wives miserable. The husband may favor one wife while abusing another. When thievery is suspected, the wife is the first to be accused. If she is unable to endure her cruel treatment, she might leave, yet the authority in society is enough to send her back. The husband might seek vengeance against her, even secretly putting her to death. Since women are dependent and miserable every day, why continue to force them to be tied down and burned to death for her deceased husband? The practice of sati was officially abolished in 1829 by Governor General William Bentick, but it would not have been possible without Roy. He had successfully demonstrated that it was not a practice upheld by Hindu scriptural tradition. Among re-evaluating religion, Roy was a huge proponent for education in India as well. There was a growing trend of literature that had spread through Bengal, and its main consumers were the natives and the British. The Bengali were becoming acquainted with their sacred doctrines along with the new studies in Western science and philosophy. Many members of the Hindu and Muslim middle class had put their combined efforts towards their faith by restoring or establishing temples and mosques and held festivals in the communities. Others started schools, publications, or held discussion societies that brought Western missionaries to challenge their idolatry and caste system. The French Enlightenment questioned the Muslim and Hindu traditions against individual rights. Roy's experience in being multilingual and its benefits pushed him to open a school for boys in 1816 to teach them English. There was word that the British had set aside a budget for a new school in Calcutta, which excited many Indians. However, this school was not what they had in mind, so in December of 1823, Roy sent a plea to the Governor General William Pitt. I have also summarized this plea provided by Guha. It starts by describing the native population as reluctant to impose on the government on public measures, but some circumstances must be addressed. When the British arrived to rule, they were to govern an entirely different kind of people, so acclamation would not be so easy. The natives could forgive them for their lack of knowledge of a completely foreign people when implementing measures meant to benefit India. The new school to be established in Calcutta revealed the government's desire to improve the natives. When the Indians discovered that the British government had devoted money for the school, they had hoped that Europeans would be hired to teach Western science and philosophy. The natives looked forward to learning the new findings in math, natural philosophy, chemistry, anatomy, and etc. to become enlightened like the rest of Europe. However, this new Sanskrit school had hired Hindus to teach knowledge already found in India. The natives only expect the school to teach grammar and quote, metaphysical distinctions useless to society, The Sanskrit language is already difficult to learn that it takes nearly a lifetime of devotion to master it. The natives see it as a hindrance to the spread of knowledge, and the reward for learning it is insufficient to the work required to put in it. Any valuable information that it does contain could be found elsewhere in the country. If this Sanskrit school would be established, there would be no improvement for Indian society. The young men taught would not believe in the teachings of the Vedanta, which instructs a belief in no existence of visible objects or entities. It teaches that the sooner this world is left behind, the better it would be. To compare this to Europe, Roy suggested this school would be similar to teaching Europeans the state of science before the works of Lord Francis Bacon. The Sanskrit system of education would keep the country of India in darkness. If improvement of the natives is the goal, then instructing them in current Western science with the help of a European gentleman and proper text would be the best course of action. This fascination with and demand for learning among the natives could not have been possible without the introduction of the printing press. British rule was dependent on a network of native collaboration of Indian merchants, soldiers, accountants, and officials to collect taxes and enforce British law. They introduced the printing press to Bengal in late 18th century with the first book printed in 1778 titled Grammar of the Bengali Language written by Nathaniel Hallad. Twenty years later, the press was brought to the Serampore missionary by Baptist minister William Carey. This press began to issue books in several European and Indian languages which quickly found its imitators. The Calcutta School Book Society was later founded in 1817 with members that included Bengali Hindus and Muslims along with Europeans. They printed and distributed 125,000 copies of books in half a dozen languages in just its first four years. In 1821, Ramahan Roy started one of the first Bengali newspapers, also writing its contents. He then did the same with a Persian publication. He would propagate his ideas through his Bengali paper called the Sangbag Kamudi, or Moon of Intelligence. An English periodical in India, the Calcutta Journal, wrote in December of 1821 that Roy's paper, quote, will be the means of the moral and intellectual renovation of India, end quote. In 1830, a London magazine described his paper as, quote, "...advocating freedom, civil and religious, opposed to corruption and tyranny, and laboring to eradicate the idolatrous rights of the Brahmins and awaken the Hindus to a sense of the degradation and misery into which they have been plunged." Back in 1824, the Bengali government, which was controlled by the East India Company, had issued an ordinance that restricted the press. All papers and journals were required to get a license that could be granted or removed at the government's discretion. Roy protested this action with a petition signed by other prominent Bengali citizens and sent to the government. Guha also provided this memorial's excerpts. It starts with Roy recounting the introduction of the press to Calcutta, which introduced free discussion and improved the minds of the natives as they began to reflect and sought knowledge. The press also brought them news in the country and interesting details of England and the world. The signers of the petition hoped for the government to protect the press to give them accurate accounts of local news, but were disheartened to discover the governor-general had imposed restrictions. Once the rule would go into effect, the signers planned to stop their publications, no longer able to convey the natives the laws and customs of the British government. Now, if any official would abuse their power, the natives could no longer see these transgressions or how to address the problems to the council in England. Subsequently, the treatment and condition of the natives would become unknown to England without the newspapers ran by the Indians. The citizens of Calcutta can no longer boast that they are a providence protected by the British crown since they have been stripped of one of the most basic rights. This restriction mirrors the actions of the previous Asiatic princes who would keep the people in darkness. History has proved that removing a people's voice was a disadvantage to society, "...for we find that as often as an ignorant people, when an opportunity offered, have revolted against their rulers, all sorts of barbarous excesses and cruelties have been the consequence." When people were given peace and ease under a fair government, they became attached and enlightened because they learned to appreciate what they have. All great rulers that are aware of human error understand the liability of making a mistake when managing an empire... They would want all people to be aware and notified of whatever they required, and an unrestricted press is the most effective means. If the press was abused, there are laws in place to punish those offenders. The signers concluded by wishing to remove the restriction and allow the natives to enjoy the same freedoms their fathers were granted under the British. The Governor General refused to respond, so Roy decided to appeal directly to the king. This may have been the first time an Indian had addressed a British monarch. He included several moral and political reasons to protect their freedom of the press in another memorial presented by Guha. In the excerpt, Roy pointed out that men in power against the free press have never really found true malice from it, but they would claim it could support an insurrection. However, Roy argued that a free press had never sparked a revolution because the people had an outlet to address their grievances, so the passion for a revolution would be gone whereas no free press could cause the grievances to build and left unrepresented could lead to revolutions or insurrections. Tyrannical governments desired suppressing free expression on the chance it would expose acts of oppression. They would argue that the spread of knowledge was dangerous to authority, that enlightened people would realize that by banding together they could, quote, become emancipated from the restraints of power altogether, end quote. However, countries with higher instances of revolt or anarchy have made little if any advancement in society. Nations with more enlightened people have less results, and any resistance have been against the abuses of governing powers. For example, Canada refused to side with the U.S. during the Revolutionary War because the British government had addressed their grievances and kept their rights secured. Quote, In fact, it may be fearlessly averred that the more enlightened a people become, the less likely they are to revolt against the governing power. End quote. By restricting the press in India, the people of England may begin to speculate that a modification of their laws could be enacted at home. An example of such modification could be a penalty against anyone who may try to excite anger among the Indian natives. Another could be a penalty against someone attempting to incite rebellion with neighboring states. British subjects are, at the time of writing this, unaware of any restrictions taking place, but if they were penalized because of a limited press, they would be willing to protest regardless of the penalties. Free expression through the press is not a burden to the state, but if the king believes that this privilege has been broken by the natives, even though they approve their loyalty, then they would fully accept the punishment necessary after a trial and investigation. They do oppose being restrained by arbitrary laws made at the whim of a few individuals without defending themselves. The despotic mogul princes who formerly ruled India had employed two intelligence officers to the homes of their lord lieutenants, The Akbar Navis, or news writer, published accounts of whatever happened, and the Kufiya Navis, or confidential correspondent, sent private and specific accounts of every noteworthy occurrence. The Lord lieutenants were usually friends or relatives to the prince, yet he did not fully trust them with an unbiased account of their administration. The prince knew that some restraint was necessary for those in power to prevent their abuse of that power. India continues to produce wealth and the inhabitants are still gathering wealth through corrupt means learned from the previous rulers. The British government is very far, and communication is left to those inhabitants who seek their own interests and wealth, and disregard the opinion of natives. Some restraint must be placed on them to protect the natives from those corrupted with power. These grievances could be addressed in the court of director of the East India Company and be remedied, but the natives are unaware of this procedure. Without friends in England, nor knowledge of the country, the natives would not be successful in bringing any issues to the court. Their representation depends on the local government that would claim it has no ability to influence any sort of redress. This has been used to discourage and prevent any kind of representation for the natives. Roy concluded by pleading for the king to rescind the rule created by the judge and prohibit any authority in India from removing privileges and rights of the people there. He also requested for an independent gentleman to be appointed to look into the real conditions of the people in Bengal. Roy then appealed to the king's ego. Your majesty's faithful subjects from the distance of almost half the globe appeal to your majesty's heart by the sympathy which forms a paternal tie between you and the lowest of your subjects, not to overlook their condition. They appeal to you by the honor of that great nation which under your royal auspices has obtained the glorious title of liberator of Europe, not to permit the possibility of millions of your subjects being wantonly trampled on and oppressed. They lastly appeal to you by the glory of your crown on which the eyes of the world are fixed, Not to consign the natives of India to perpetual oppression and degradation. Unfortunately, Guha did not include whether the king rescinded the ordinance or not. However, the act of reaching out to the king is proof of Roy's struggle to improve the lives of his people. Through his writings on religion and education, distributed by his newspaper, Ramahan Roy was able to invoke serious thought into the minds of his fellow countrymen, which would lead to the independence and creation of this unique nation by future reformers. After Roy succeeded in raising the allowances for the Mughal emperor, he traveled to Bristol to visit some English friends. There, he became ill and died on September 27, 1833. He was buried there, and his tombstone erected summarized his life's work along with his scholarships, mastery of languages, and his belief in God. Quote, His unwearied labors to promote social, moral, and physical condition of the people of India, his earnest endeavors to suppress idolatry and the right of sati, and his constant zealous advocacy of whatever tended to advance the glory of God and the welfare of man live in the grateful remembrance of his countrymen." Quote. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at whyweareherepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on social media on Instagram at whyweareherepodcast and on Twitter at Pod. Please rate and review this and other episodes to let me know how I'm doing and you can follow me on SoundCloud or Spotify for new episodes to find out why we're here.